I couldn't get away from the States fast enough. I said, if I'm going to be locked down, for heaven's sake, let me get back to my forest. Deep in the Abiokuta Forest in southwestern Nigeria, there's an enormous red brick villa filled with an abundance of art and ideas. It was meant to be a small cottage, but then the man building it was awarded the Nobel Prize. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard 1986 literature laureate Wale Soyinka, author, poet and playwright, who, according to the award motivation, in a wide cultural perspective and with poetic overtones, fashions the drama of existence. In his troubled homeland of Nigeria, he has never been afraid to take a political stand, but he does question the idea of literature as an effective political tool. It's not pessimism. I think it's just exhaustion. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Site Stiftung. Wale Soyinka speaks to Adam from Lagos, where the internet connection is better than in Abiokuta, about his photographic memory, the need for change in Nigeria, and his obsession with space travel. But first, we start at the beginning of his life as a creator of fiction. When did you start writing? Oh, I think I began scribbling quite early, uh, orally, as a child. I was never completely satisfied with the way stories that we were told as children. Well, that's wrong. Not that I wasn't satisfied, but let's put it this way. That I always felt that there were 10 possible permutations and combinations uh, in terms of versions of the details, the characters, and the actions of whatever stories that we were told, whether they were folk tales or they were the contemporary tales. I always had this impulse in the retelling. And we then told those stories among ourselves. Others would say, what's wrong with you? That's not the way it went. It doesn't matter. This is the way I think it should be going. Now that I'm retelling it. I grew up with it, with that habit. And so from that, from the oral storytelling, scribbling short stories, trying my hand out with the putative radio station in school, writing for the school magazine, which used to be handwritten in ledger uh, books and so on. That it, it became a habit, so that I can't say specifically this when I began writing. I, I like that, like the sort of questioning of the received wisdom, questioning of the story's end. It reminds me of a physicist, a Nobel laureate physicist called Sung Dao Lee, who, when he first encountered Newton's laws at the age of 16, questioned them in the textbook. And that's such an unusual response. Most people read Newton's laws and say, OK, I better learn those and accept them. He wondered whether they were right. And it sounds like it's very similar. Yeah, it, 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 it's the same thing as being curious, I think, which I was as a child. And not querulous, but argumentative. Being argumentative in certain ways is uh, also part of creativity to you're trying to explore other points of view. You're trying to question what you're given. I think that's all those are components, ingredients towards uh, creative thinking and eventually creative re-expression 
of encountered realities. In your autobiography, you talk about the patience of your father and how he would listen to you. How important do you think it is to have your curiosity indulged as a child? Well, <clears throat> yeah, really, <laughs> I think my father was a joke. <laughs> my mother was not so patient uh, with me. But I think uh, being patient with um, the children is excellent for their development. Of course, they get to um, argumentative and give them a smack and to go with one play or whatever. But basically, listening to their own, the product of their own curiosity, it's also very good for one, for especially if you have a teacher's instinct. I think one should uh, be very patient with children. And uh, if one lacks that temperament, one should then keep away from them. In other words, not stay close enough to tamp them down each time they irritate with their sense of self-expression and disagreement. I think one should just then say, all right, go and create your own world. Leave me alone. I'm busy. <laughs> but do, when did you decide that writing was a force for influencing people, for political change, for really making a difference? I'm not very sure that I've become even totally persuaded that writing is a force for political change. It is certainly a weapon, a weapon of contestation, a weapon of, uh, for the quest for the amelioration of social conditions, which for me is a common citizen duty. It's not peculiar to writers. And the reason I say I have not become totally convinced about the role which it can play, which it should play, which it does play, is that it always seems to be a Sisyphean labor when it comes to literature, writing, or the arts in any form as instruments of change. At the end of it, you sort of feel that the resistance to it has been on such a level that you're starting all over again, 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 and again. That you're confronting the same ogres, encountering the same immovables, the same immovable mountains, that the forces of uh, retrogression always seem to be even more powerful than the power of literature. It's not pessimism. I think it's just exhaustion. <laughs> uh, human. But then I try, to, I try to console myself that literature is a social undertaking. It's a continuum also. And so it's not the labor of one individual alone or one generation or one movement. The same thing with ideology. Marxism flattered itself that it had reached the end of history. Look at it today. Any kind of absolute uncertainties and rigidities they are bound to crumble sooner or later. And so uh, even the negatives of society, one realizes, uh, also take a, a tumble frequently. But from the individual point of view, individual, especially if one, if the, shall we say, the, the crest of one's energy, in my view, my thinking, when I look back, that that crest of one's energy really has been dissipated against very, very implacable foes, enemies, obstacles, then hmm. one tends to be a little bit exhausted. Let me just put it that way. 
A fierce critic of political corruption and religious extremism in his country, Wale Soyinka has twice been imprisoned for criticizing the Nigerian government. In September, he will publish his first novel in almost 50 years, a satirical examination of corruption, with the ironic title, Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. When asked to describe the state of Nigeria today, he's rather more blunt. A most unhappy place, a most unhappy land. After our experience with the civil war, uh, events that led to it, some of the consequences of that war, I just didn't think it was possible that this nation, this country, hardly a nation now, could degenerate to this level. It's chaos. When you were much younger and writing about the, in particular, the, the history of the country in the wake of colonialism, were you hopeful that things would somehow sort themselves out and the nation would rise to a, a good state of being? Well, let's put it this way. I think I'm a little bit luckier than most in that for one reason or the other, maybe because of my over-acute uh, temperament and observation and so on, that I, uh, I foresaw some of the signs of what we're seeing today. But I was still, I wouldn't use the word optimistic, I, I was still quite uh, sufficiently confident that uh, there's enough uh, will around, enough awareness of history, enough determination to make the best of a, of a colonial offering, colonial bequest, that uh, we could actually envisage a, a really vibrant, creative, and really adventurous nation. Yes, I think uh, I did go through that phase. And, and so I think I, I was quite convinced I belong to a certain generation, which is, yes, let's use that word, quite optimistic about the future, yes, at that time. How much of that optimism survives? Not much, not much. From time to time, it, it resurges. You encounter people, especially with somebody like me who uh, traveled a lot, at least before COVID, uh, I would meet lots of, not just Nigerians, but lots of young Africans, visionaries, really uh, competent, uh, competent in their disciplines. And so one looked at the nation through the eyes of the potential humanity of which one felt a part. And so one didn't really uh, realize, one didn't, even though one flattered oneself that one had a grasp of that entity coming into being as a modern nation, I think we saw the nation mostly through the eyes of our individual encounters. Uh, we were the Renaissance people, let's put it that way, we were the Renaissance people. Yes, there were problems on the continent, but yeah, that's why we were there. And most of the problems for a nation like mine were external. Settler colonialism in East Central Africa, there was a hideous a uh, problem, the hideous philosophy and inhumanity of apartheid. And so these were the major issues. And we felt up to them. It was like the solution was going to come from us. That's how confident we were, my, my generation. So you could say that, yes, during that period, we went through what you might call uh, an optimistic uh, phase. 
What do you put the current, as you describe it, chaos down to? I would like to simplify things and say this, these are the consequences of internecine warfare. But of course, what started the warfare in the first place, I'm talking now about the Biafran War of Secession, which was uh, not so much a, a watershed as a, a bloodshed, a pun really intended. And so again, even that contributed in part to a feeling of confidence because we, we had people from all sides who are bright, progressive thinking, and so on. And we were aware, of course, that we left a political legacy that was false. I'm talking now about what the British did when they were leaving, such as falsifying the census figures to make sure that power resided in one side rather than the other, uh, going as far as in rigging elections to make sure that one side, which they considered more pliable to their own future plans, you know, came in power. But all, all those, we thought, were just minor pinpricks, which could be overridden just by the coming together of my generation from all, all sides. Mm. Then, in addition to this immediate malaise, uh, thinking, this negative, backward thinking of leadership, of feeling that they were coming in, not as Nigerians, partners, but as uh, successors to the British, the former colonial powers, which they had been tutored, encouraged to believe. And so they began to behave exactly, even worse than our colonial masters. And so my generation had to contend with that principally. And we had to draw in our horns, so to speak, instead of the romantic, if you like, uh, notion of marching down and wiping out apartheid and chasing out uh, the settler colonials and the former Rhodesias, etc., etc. We found we had identical, if not even worse, problems. And so we became more inner-sighted. And the more we tackled the problems, the more we realized that they were even endemic within how we were put together in the first place. Hmm. But still, we soldiered on believing that we could make something even out of this, this disparate, this uh, quilt work of nations, which have been forced into one. But there were others who were not interested in that. And as I said, they were solidly entrenched in power. The population of Africa is very young. 70% are under 35. Lagos is going to become, they say, the biggest city in the world by 2100. The country is just going to become huge, Nigeria, and its surrounding African nations as well. Something has to be fixed. Is there, can you, if you project yourself out of this moment to the sort of medium to far future, can you become optimistic? Well, there's been a, a hue and cry. It's been going on for years now in the media, in the legislatures, in the religious, in religious circles, professional circles. That word, which is very relevant to your observation about the size of Nigeria, the potential of Nigeria, that word has been restructuring. I use other expressions, 
like decentralization, recognizing the fact that the nation itself has become too unwieldy and its, its, its size has not caught up with the, the potential of modern life, of modern ways of doing things. And so this cry is a very rational one. On the other hand, however, when leaders, uh, the politicians, when they get into power uh, and they find themselves sitting on this vast estate, vast potential, vast reality, humanist state, materialist state, they feel so empowered, they don't want to release, to decentralize that power. They don't want to diffuse that power. So we have a problem of that power lost, which I always say very often is at the heart of most political upheavals uh, history has ever known. And so they get there and they forget that before they themselves got to power, they were screaming, decentralize or perish. If Nigeria doesn't begin decentralizing, it'll probably just disintegrate completely, which is what is already beginning to happen. Now you're having even zones, areas like mine, for instance, the West. You never had the crowd secession from the West. Now people are moving out, the Westerners, the Eurobars in particular, every time what, they're beginning now to shout secession. And it's not so much that they want those who are you know, not passionate about secession. No, it's just because they have worked things out very rationally, and they've come to this conclusion that they didn't want to perish with the rest of the nation. But they say, we've been held down by an insistence on an impractical and unrealistic mode of internal governance. So that's the first stage, I think, to be able to convince the legislatures as well as the executive government that it's about time to boldly come out and say, let us decentralize, let us go back to what we experimented with before, and which operated not too badly, an authentic federalism, in which there is a healthy competition, healthy competition in terms of productivity and progress among nations. Instead of tying all this up with the issue of religious domination, ethnic domination, this curious sense of history, of domination, which doesn't apply <laughs> in modern circumstances, etc., etc., etc. Now, the units, when they are forced to produce their own livelihood, their own existence, to reproduce their own quality of life, will go back to that sense of competitive creativity with which I grew up, you know, in my youth. Let's talk about your youth a little bit. Um, of course, you've written about it extensively. And one of the things, actually, one of, one of the things that amazes me is, is your, your memory. In Ake, that book describes your life until you were 11, and you seem to have such clarity of memory about your youth. Why do you think that is? Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I've encountered this before in Ake, uh, comments on Ake and one or two other works. But I've always assumed that everybody had the same kind of memory. I have a vast photographic memory, sounds, smells, um, bits of conversation, going all the way back to my childhood. And until very recently, uh, well, not all that recently now, until Ake and comments, I, I, I didn't find this extraordinary. I thought everybody was exactly the same. But it's, it's both uh, 
is both a curse sometimes uh, as well as a, a blessing, I imagine, the opposite of curse. But even the political effect, little, little uh, details of social existence, I'm always astonished that many people don't remember it of our own generation. You seem to remember, I mean, you seem to remember the details of meals, of your spoon splashing in your food and things. Is it that it was reinforced all the time by talking about it with others, or is it just that you have this capacity? I, I think it's just that I have this capacity. And as I said, I thought it was normal. I thought, I thought everybody had it. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky you. Wally Soyinka doesn't drive to Lagos if he doesn't have to. The congestion between Abiokuta and the big city can be the stuff of nightmares. Thankfully, this particular trip only took two hours. Previous journeys have taken up to eight hours, sometimes requiring him to spend the night in his car. Perhaps it's no wonder he dreams of the vast expanses of outer space. I'm a space nut, by the way. I follow all... <laughs> launches and I follow what's going on. I've been to undergoing zero gravity experience at NASA. I jumped at the first opportunity. <laughs> I, I was up there before even Stephen Hawking's <laughs> great scientific mind. He went after me. <laughs> so what was it like in zero gravity? Oh, it's, uh, it's too brief. It's, it, it's sublime. It's, it's the, the mystical moments uh, in some of the exercises which we conducted when we were space, when we were total zero gravity. And uh, it stays with you forever. Too brief. Much too what brief. do you get? About You get about 17 seconds or something? Or is it a little longer? I can't remember. No, it was uh, over 60 seconds. We had various gravity uh, grades. There's one lunar gravity, and there was Martian gravity, and so on, and until we got to zero, and by that time, we had all 60 seconds of it. And it's amazing, because we're all quite well-disciplined, it's amazing how much we were able to get into those 60 seconds, including just passing a sort of uh, lotus figure across to one another, but with a finger, just with a fingertip, <laughs> touch of fingertip. Uh, that was really marvelous. That's one which I said was a mystic moment. But it, all of it, even the rockers, parts, which I uh, annoy me, because the others were whooping at the beginning. So but everything was, was sublime, everything. I love the idea of you being a space nut. Where did this passion come from? I don't know. Um, nobody ever asked me that question before. Um, I can't remember. Maybe uh, my incursion into space fiction, which began in school. So it could have been then that I developed it. And uh, when people really began to go into space, I, I just segued from space literature into the actual exploration adventures. Wale Soyinka wrote his first plays during his university years, before debuting as a novelist in 1965 with The Interpreters. He's also written numerous poems, essays, screenplays and short stories. One of his most acclaimed works is the play Death and the King's Horseman, which premiered in 1975. It's based on a real incident in 1946, 
where the horseman of a deceased Yoruba king was prevented from committing ritual suicide by the colonial authorities, causing a catastrophic rift in the community. May I ask you if you feel that you, there is a particular person you write for when you write? Oh, it varies. Uh, sometimes, for instance, what I do, what I call my guerrilla theatre, I'm writing specifically and uh, we're trying to punch the faces of uh, some villainous Nigerians. Uh, when I'm taking on what I consider excesses and unacceptable foibles in society, I'm obviously writing for Nigerians. And, but then, a, a number of my works, I'm just narrating a tale for whoever is interested. Uh, when I write it, Devon the King's Horseman, is because I'm moved by that particular story. And I, I know that it has uh, a significance, uh, it has a perspective for any kind of human being, even though the story is about my own immediate close society. So it varies a lot. It varies. So when you wrote, for instance, Death and the King's Horseman, was there a, an overriding objective in writing that? Were you hoping that people would be educated by it, for instance, or were you really driven primarily by just wanting to tell that story, which was true? Yeah, it's a story which had been with me as creative potential ever since I learned about it, like a number of other stories. But in the tragic vein, this is one which... Uh, I felt contained the ingredients of a very unique kind of unquestionable kind of tragedy. The values there are questionable, both the values of the society depicts and the values of the society that thought its own values were superior to that, those of uh, my own society. So I, that story for me was a very complex and challenging one. Uh, and so obviously it applied to humanity in general. I, I would be dishonest if I said I was focusing on a particular society as the immediate target of my, shall we say, of my exposition. I, I, I was just fascinated by the the contradictory nature of humanity uh, behind that tragedy. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your forest home, because I think it's so extraordinary. Could you just tell us about it? All right. When, when I decided to retire from the University of Ife, um, I decided to build a small cottage, to build a small place where I would do nothing but write, do a bit of uh, my favorite hobby, hunting around the forests and so on and so forth. So I wanted a large swathe of real estate. I was going to build it, and if I eventually had money, I said I'll build other cottages you know, for other writers who might need a retreat in that kind of a place. That's really how it started. So I went to the uh, housing corporation, which had these huge... Uh, I'd already acquired these huge tracts of land. And uh, that, that piece as far away from humanity as possible and built, you know, set about building a house, small cottage. In the midst of that, I won the Nobel Prize and I became more ambitious. So I built a much bigger house than <laughs> I ever planned and built uh, a wing for uh, 
resident artists and so on and so forth. And uh, fortunately, uh, it, it is very wise of me to have uh, plunked that house right in the middle of that uh, real estate rather than at the edge because society has caught up with the forest. Fortunately, because it's in the middle, I remain surrounded by a green belt right all the way around it and virtually uninterrupted. Nobody you know, comes there unless on invitation. And once I get in there, I, I'm cut off from the rest of the world. Bliss, bliss. Utter bliss and a, and a, a wildlife preserve to boot. How important do you find it to be cut off when you're writing? I know you go to other houses to to write as well. Is the retreat a very important part of writing? Yes, yes. But, okay, here's an irony. When I began thinking of writing Chronicles, my most recent novel, uh, The Long Gap in Prose Fiction, I found that I needed to get away even from my own uh, retreat. I needed to be outside Nigeria, completely cut off from Nigeria. And so I had to start hunting for a place to retreat. And a colleague lent me his cottage in Yene, a small village in Yene, uh, Senegal, not far from Dakar, where I spent about uh, 10 days to begin with. And then I had a break, I had to go back to reality. And then after a while, I got another place and spent another eight days. It was in northern Ghana, in a place called Aburi, uh, and managed to get a, a chunk, a fair chunk down. And then there was another long gap. And this time, it was COVID, which compelled me to stay in my own place. In fact, when the lockdowns began, I was caught up in the States. And I couldn't get away from the States fast enough. I said, I'm going to be locked down. For heaven's sake, let me get back to my forest. And I think I virtually was, I was, I was on virtually the last plane into Nigeria before Nigeria's lockdown began. And so I stayed there throughout. And that's where I can completed the, uh, the novel. So obviously, I need that kind of isolation for prolonged concentrated work. But fortunately, I'm also able to work in all kinds of conditions. I work in the plains. I work while waiting for an appointment. My laptop is with me. I have the gift of being able to shut off completely my surrounding for short spells. Two short spells, not a prolonged spell. But, and, and famously, you could write in prison as well. So it's... Yes, yes. Uh, I prefer not to go to prison to be creative. I think I'd rather find my isolation. Places of my choice. <laughs> you just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yillier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. In season three, we welcome guests from all six prize categories. 
Medicine Laureate Elizabeth Blackburn, Chemistry Laureate Joachim Frank, Economic Sciences Laureate Paul Milgram, Peace Laureate Leima Bowie, Physics Laureate Didier Coulot, and the guest we just heard, Literature Laureate Wale Soyinka. This episode is from Season 3 of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a space nut like Wale Suinka, check out the episode with astrophysicist Didier Collot, who's now on the lookout for life on other planets. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.